Broadcasting live from Beyond the Veil, this is The Monstrous Feminine, the podcast where horrible women talk about horror. My name's Louisa, and I'm joined by my charming coven, Mila, Taya, and Zeva. And this episode is our Halloween special. In honor of our favorite holiday, we are going to tackle the classic horror trope, Scream Queens. First up, we are analyzing John Carpenter's 1978 classic, Halloween, and the role of the most famous Scream Queen, Jamie Lee Curtis. Next, we're going to talk about the 1986 film Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, directed by Jack Shoulder and starring the Scream King, Mark Patton. Finally, we're going to wrap up by discussing a 2016 horror called Hush, directed by Mike Flanagan. This modern film uses actress Kate Siegel to usher in a new kind of screen queen to the genre. Enjoy! I follow the QI Twitter and they just have random facts. Um, like on a constant stream all day and one of them was that watching horror movies actually thickens your blood so you know the sort of phrase like oh it made my blood curdle if something is particularly disturbing or uh scary that it to some extent is true that it, it curdles your blood because you are your adrenaline peaks they this research group in Leiden University thought that your blood prepares for injury, so then it releases more of the blood clotting protein. So that's temporary, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's it's not. I, it's Are not, we yeah, like yeah. killing ourselves? Because I don't like doing this podcast. Yeah, that was my question too. <laughs> to die. <Yeah. laughs> this is my way of saying I'm out. In lieu of us doing a scream competition for our listeners' delicate ears, what if we challenge them to find? the scream of mine that we inserted into one of the episodes <laughs> in the past you win nothing but the pride of having of having um listened to all of our podcasts to find it <laughs> what are the characteristics of a scream queen they are a virgin i thought you were gonna say virgo <laughs> they have to be the one person who doesn't want to like party and is like innocent and also has not had sex yet they're kind of squares. <laughs> they're losers, no. They're squares, but they know how to handle their business. Like, the reason they survive so long is because they've got, like, good practical life skills and a brain that works halfway. And, of course, they have an iconic scream. Did you guys know... Like, a fun fact is that Jamie Lee Curtis said that she thinks the reason why she, like, beat out the other girl who was competing for the role in Halloween was because her mom is the lead actress in Psycho. And so she thinks they wanted, like, the, to mirror that the first Scream Queen and her as a Scream Queen. Monstrous Feminine is on Apple Podcasts, and you can go rate us five stars and leave us a glowing review. Tell us we're amazing, because we deserve it. And if you do, you will be our Witch of the Week, and we'll give you a shout-out. So, our Witch of the Week this week is Mad Cat, who says, Love it! I love this podcast! They discuss such a great range of horror films. It's quickly become one of my favorites. Highly recommend. Thank you, Mad Cat! You're extra blessed because you get to be our Halloween episode, Witch of the Week. So have a wonderful, wonderful holiday. 
eat lots of candy apples. Mmm. Cast lots of spells. I hope you have the best luck with caramel apples and that it doesn't get stuck in your teeth. That's a great wish, actually. I, I second that. To properly tackle the Scream Queen horror trope, we need to take you back to when it was first coined. Although the trope was visible in horror prior, people often cite Jamie Lee Curtis as the ultimate Scream Queen, as her performance in Halloween landed her a string of other prominent roles in horror. In this film, an escaped killer by the name of Michael Myers returns to his hometown in Illinois to search for his next victims. High school teen Lori and her group of friends find themselves unwitting targets whilst babysitting in the area. This movie really confused me a lot. I know it's a classic, so I feel like I was supposed to like it, but I'm not sure if I actually liked it. Like, it wasn't bad. It was just... One of the things I had was, like, it... I mean, you could tell that it was, like, directed by a man. Like, babysitting is a very feminine job. It's associated with, like, teenage girls. And then, like, during that run scene where she's, like, running from house to house... And he's, like, chasing her around the house and her friend's bodies kind of just fall out without anyone doing anything, which is a really not good jump scare. Um, it just sound like, if, if no one knew what I was watching, it would sound like I was watching a porno. It, it was just, some parts just felt very cringe. <laughs> I always say that, that early horror and classic horror movies are the same acting level and plot arc is porn i've i think people have definitely written on this and that like it's all very like like screaming and moaning happen in this exact same ways anytime somebody pulls out a knife it's super penetrative like there's it follows the same arc as like how are we setting this up i don't know somebody brought a pizza shrug and and then there's like a climax pun intended and then there's sort of this like there's no, there's no resolution. There's no fall because a lot of horror movies have like a jump scare at the end or like and or a setup for a sequel. So it's like boring arc, weird forced relationships and and dialogue. There's a climax and then no resolution, and that's like it's the porn horror crossover. It's true because even when one of her friends are dying and she's like getting strangled with the phone cord, and Lori literally just thinks that she's like accidentally dialed her to have her listen to her have sex like (laughs) she literally thinks her murder is her just like boning so um not too far off i love how they all die with their tops off though like dying with your titties out (laughs) like when Lori's in the room when they're about to start the chase or whatever he like comes up behind her after all her friends bodies fall out he like cuts her shirt (laughs) instead of like stabbing her and i'm like if he wanted to kill her why is he cutting her sleeves well it's kind of how it's like the beginning when he kills his sister he's this weird thing with his sister and she had her titties out but that that's what i mean like why does everyone have to die with their boobs out like it's just like why not louisa well i mean like personally i just got a nipple piercing and i'd love it because the more people who see this the merrier (laughs) (laughs) everyone will know i want everyone to know But actually, like, what? why is there a requirement that they have to have their tits out to die? I don't understand. It's, like, classic bullshit. Like, it's also our monstrous feminine, like, the virgin lives because she's the final girl. And 
the people who are sexually active all die, and the women especially die in such a sexual manner. This is why I love the first... So I watched the first Scream movie for the first time in many, many years recently, and I really, like, like the way they just lay it all out, I'm like, this is how it happens in horror movies. Like, it's super, super formulaic. Mm-hmm. And Halloween, I think, was one of the first movies that really was, like, never deviated from any of the rules of horror. Like, was, like, so within that framework. And then all of the movies that followed after took bits and pieces of that framework. And if, even if they didn't do it so, like, stringently. But I was wondering, why does horror have these rules when the whole point of it is spontaneity like you should be like startled or the unexpected should happen but for years and years and years they were so formulaic i really like that point but i think it just shows how dumb we are as humans and as (laughs) cinema goers because we can enjoy those really formulaic films and it's it's just enough to be to feel scared or feel the tension despite knowing the outcome Mm -hmm. maybe because like men dominated the industry for so long and they had a certain way of like it's not just like horror that was archetyped and like put in a box it was just women in general who were like put in a box of how they could be on screen so like that would be why it followed the pattern like hysterical woman or especially in this film stupidly drops the knife far too fucking early (laughs) like like, she gives him one little poke, and then it's like, okay, he's dead. I was like, I would be, like, <laughs> hardcore, like, stabbing multiple times. Maybe, like, we just didn't have a very broad way of imagining how women could be in a horror, like, how they would react, like, so they just ended up following this formula. I, one thing about this movie that was odd is that they seem to forget that he was a human killer. So there are things that happened to him in the movie that I'm like, he would be dead. Like, he got shot six times and, like, falls off the balcony, and he somehow walked away. Yeah. He, like, survived multiple gunshots, and then... And she had also stabbed him at that point, like, two or three times. So it just doesn't make sense how he's surviving all of these things throughout the movies. Like, at no point, I don't think, is there any indication that he's a ghost. And also, like, the psychologist or whatever from the psychiatric hospital doesn't call the police and tell him that he got away he just is like this is my signal i'm gonna go after him yeah i didn't i super didn't understand the role of a doctor like i thought he was supposed to be the detective and all of a sudden the doctor was like leading this one man manhunt i was just like what and then he had a gun i was like why does he have a gun yeah also, like, if a notorious killer escaped from a psychiatric hospital i think you would alert yeah. police Um, and not just take it on as a job of your own to stop him. My high school was quite near to a very famous psychiatric hospital. So there would be an alarm, of course, if somebody escaped, and there would be a practice for that alarm, like, every week, and you could hear it. And it it was pretty far away. It was maybe, like, 15 miles away, and you could hear the alarm. What if they, like, dressed up as a Catholic girl? like infiltrated your school like a catholic school girl yeah that would that be is really great horror movie <laughs> i made this note also about nightmare on elm street too but there's this like 
real class paranoia about something happening to people in the suburbs or like upper middle class white people it makes it that much more horrifying but what's really shookening to me is anytime someone screams in the suburbs y'all just don't go to see you don't go to suss it out you don't go to see if your neighbor's all right like people are screaming up and down the street and no one is batting an eye no one's lights are turning on. No one's even like peeking to see if there's a murderer outside. Everyone just minds their business. And I think the true horror is waspy ignorance. That is true. She does like bang on the people's door and they like briefly turn on the light and she's screaming like, help me. And they like turn it off and go upstairs and go to sleep. And <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that'd be me. I'd be like these kids nowadays. <laughs> No, I think it is, it's very much like an individualistic society that America, white America, suburban America transitioned to. Also low-key England too, like not very friendly, not very friendly. To be fair, outside of London, I will say the northerners in England are fantastic. (laughs) Chef's kids. (laughs) They're so much nicer than the people in the south. You know what, yeah. If you go outside of London, actually, people are really friendly. I need to rephrase. It's not just England. It's or the UK in general. It's uh, it's London. Why do you think they made him kill his sister in the beginning of the movie? I have no idea. Was it like some sort of weird Oedipal complex subtly because his sister was like being his caregiver in this instance? Oh, maybe. Um, I think it's something to do like with her. Her. I'm pretty sure she was like. She had a boyfriend. There's some sort of like weird yeah. jealousy. With the boy with her him jealous of her boyfriend and like to own her he ended her. But life. maybe it's like I don't know a, the franchise well a, enough. A bit of that, but also like maybe he felt neglected because she was meant to be babysitting and then she like fucked her boyfriend. And maybe that's why he then goes and targets other babysitters who are no, but he, she, no, that doesn't make any sense. He was fine. He was in But that doesn't health. make any sense because uh, Lori was a very dutiful babysitter and he was still trying to kill her. So scrap yeah. that. He just wants to kill women with their tits out. I thought it was a nod to Psycho, that like, for, that second person camera perspective, like through the, you know what I'm talking about? Like through the people. Yeah, through the mask. Yeah, yeah. yeah, through the mask. And that the like audience's voyeur and murderer thing felt very reminiscent of like, psycho and hitchcock so i thought i thought they just threw it in because like horror is constantly self-referential you know they definitely did do that not to psycho just mainly because that's jamie lee curtis's mom and i think they wanted oh. people to make that association for for the hype this gal nepotism she actually did a really good um she did a really good interview basically saying like she owes her career to nepotism which i think the self-awareness there is 10 out of 10. <laughs> I kind of said that a final girl would be like the virgin. Like Carol Clover's final girl uh, is always virginal. She also says that they're made masculine by the fact that they stab the killer. But also that Lori, as an early final girl, is a damsel in distress. And she relies on like the doctor coming to save her. So she's not exactly the stereotypical final girl either. I thought you were going to say masculinized because like all of her friends were more feminine than her in the movie. Like, just their wardrobe choices as well. And, guess, like, yeah. they were fangirling over that guy in the car that I think was actually Michael Myers. <laughs> um, 
and just like in general more like teenage girly and she was just like very serious and she only liked books the thing is like all these characters like they don't really know how to write women because they write it so one note like her friends are like oh you don't go out and you're worried that you left your chemistry book at school and all you do is study and you should have so much money because you never go out and i was like she can be studious and still go out <laughs> she can have a boyfriend and still go out like those things are not mutually exclusive you don't depend upon a boyfriend to go out and you don't depend upon not studying to go out somewhere she can go to the movie she can go grab a milkshake by herself or with her friends like what's the point of having friends if you can't hang out with them unless you have a significant other or unless you're having sex like her friends honestly sucked <laughs> in that regard because they literally made her feel like an alien and, and the movie just made it seem like without doing these things she is not a normal teenager she's exceptional yeah. and i was like i mean it's a hard sell i literally wrote down uh, a dialogue quote that i thought was so ridiculous it was she asked Lori asks what are you going to wear to the dance tomorrow night? And then her friend's like, I didn't know you thought about things like that, Lori. <laughs> I was like, what? So because she gets, it's like because she gets A's, she can't care about like a wardrobe choice. And Lori's own words not. were, guys think I'm too smart or something to date. And I was just like, what? <laughs> I'm pretty in pink, which I used to love that movie when I was younger. Like she had her friend ducky and like she was super into fashion and she was also like worried about her dad and his job and like trying to make money and she also wanted to be popular but she also like wanted to be true to herself and she had like the female friend who was like a bit older than her as well like they she had more than one thing but in this movie she has her popular friends who basically just low-key pick on her for not being <laughs> they're what they think she should be like you said that you think she's kind of masculinized by the fact that she's not having like sex or whatever but i i didn't think that made her very masculine in my eyes i still kind of saw her as quite feminine it wasn't that she wasn't having sex it was like that her friends pointed out like oh i didn't know you thought about like what to wear and like she's wearing like more masculine clothes than them and they also like her hair is cut like kind of blunt. I don't know. I just felt like they didn't make her look very all, feminine. All Lori and her friends all dressed like lesbians. And that if I take one note away, <laughs> but that's from just this, that's because lesbians like, now dress like they're from the eighties. I don't think they're dressing like eighties. <laughs> I think lesbians dress like eighties women. So what did lesbians look like then? <laughs> oh god. Her friends at least had like some sort of I don't know like when they talked about the boy like she wasn't really and she didn't she didn't really say anything and they were like I think he's kind of cute I didn't think you liked clothes and she I don't know I would argue in this movie and in the movie that we're going to discuss next it almost it almost seemed like they were alluding to the fact that she might not oh, be into guys I did yeah. not get lesbian I did too wow. no I think I, I think all and of no them point were in the movie that she really ever discussed. I'm that sorry, she's I don't into know guys. how. She's no, a you're loser. S- <laughs> not that that's not that that's no, a so must, right. but I don't know like how I missed that. <laughs> Rewatch it. That was clear to me. I'm sorry, my gay dies off. I guess yeah. I guess the sexism kind of overruns the the queerness for me because exactly. I feel like queerness salvages yeah. the movie. But I was just focusing on the fact that she's so, as you said, one note, like one dimensional. Like if you make her queer, then it gives them more credit. But it's still to me just like stupid and like I'm not like other girls kind of bullshit. No, I think I don't think she was a lesbian, but I do think that the joke, like the running joke amongst the cool kids, is that she's just not into guys. Period. No, I definitely see that now. I don't know how I missed it. But so what do you guys think of her as the scream queen? 
I mean, she's great. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) sorry, Um, I I think that she is iconic and it is like the stepping stone towards many great scream queens. But watching it now, you're kind of like, I I would say dissatisfied with the screaming. Oh, really? That was pretty good. I think those that, that like 10, 15 minutes of action made me scream. But I think I'm just an easy target. It made you scream? Everything makes me really? scream, Mila. <laughs> Spider. Life. Not in a sexual way. You guys always I didn't. I didn't. I did. I totally did. Oh, my God. I feel like it was too much, to be honest. You think it's over, but do you think that excessiveness is probably what landed her the title, right? Like, I think Scream Queens by nature are too I mean, much. <laughs> I think, like, back then, where, like, horror was kind of, like, a genre very much watched mainly by men or, like, on a date, I think it was intentional that the Screams were, like, as I said in the beginning, like, you could not differentiate them between pornography and a scary movie. Mm. It was just... It was so much of it as well. And, like, that whole chase scene was, like, 15 minutes or so of her just, like, screaming, like, oh, oh, no. And I was, like, what on <laughs> earth? Like, this is so awkward. At some point, like, if you're running from someone who's, like, with a knife, I think I would try to be quiet so they wouldn't find me rather than, like, breathily screaming and moaning. But that never happened. Like, it was very clear that it was because they wanted the audience to hear her screams. And I think it was because, like, at that time, it was kind of linked to, like, sex and pornography. And now that more women are making horror films, we don't see that as much. But, I mean, even, like, in the 2000s, you still saw that link. And even in one of the films we're talking about later, like, there's a whole scene where he's, like, stabbing the girl. But you can't really differentiate it between if he was having sex with her. Yeah, Um, it's a bit snuffy, isn't it? This is kind of a tangent, but (laughs) I was trying to think of like um, when I was googling scream queens, and I was trying to think of like black scream queens, or even people of color, women of color who could be scream queens. And like I was kind of dissatisfied with some of the lists that came up because like they were citing women who are not actually scream queens. Like I was like, like someone said Luva from Blackula would be a scream queen, and I was like think she ever screams though and it was like scream queen kind of took on the um just sort of like any actress in horror was then called a scream queen and I was like no but it's quite specific right like usually it's the final girl usually they have they scream and I was like I don't think a lot of black actresses fulfill that in horror because purely because racism means that they are never the final girl and also like um also, not always screaming. Like, I don't think Luva really screams that much in, in Blackula, if I can remember. Casting my mind back to Ep3. And I was wondering what you guys thought of that. Because if you're bringing up the, like, sexualized element to that, and I was like, ugh, is that, again, the whole, like, we can't view black women or even women of color more broadly as, like, the iconic attractive? I don't know. Like, what do you guys think? Was Jamie Lee Curtis the iconic well, I don't attractive? know, but she's like, I yeah. don't know, why do you... <laughs> she was. Oh my god, she was. Have you seen that? What's that film that she's in with uh, John Travolta? And they're doing that, like, thrusting aerobic scene. Oh, yeah. What is that? I don't know if people... Did people actually, like... N- Jamie Lee Curtis, I'm not calling you ugly, sis. I'm really not. But I did not know she was, I like... she was a, She was a The hot girl. girl of the 80s. I don't know if she's the hot girl, but I think, like... Scream- One of them. But Scream Queens in general, if they're sexualized, perhaps not so much Laurie, but I mean, later on, it's like, I don't know, if their screams are fetishized. 
if there are women of color in horror, they don't scream because they're not allowed to be afraid. I think that goes with that like black women are always strong trope. And I and I also don't know if I'd want to see them in a in a maybe a final girl scenario but I don't necessarily want to see them be scream queens because scream queens almost have this forced feminization and they are like like ex they're experiencing a lot of trauma and but like when you see like a woman of color on screen I think you expect to see that amount of trauma so I would almost want them to be strong at least like in a fictionalized context like I I don't necessarily I guess in Candyman, she gets stabbed. Like that was, I didn't like seeing it. I didn't like seeing it because it was too realistic. I'm like, that would happen. Some white lady would break into your apartment and murder you. Like that feels correct. And, but the, what's terrifying about scream queens and white scream queens is that it's happening to the white upper middle class. And that's why they react in that way because they can never imagine that something so violent would enter their life. Whereas a character where, where, who's marginalized and probably would have violence enacted on them in a non-fiction context, I don't necessarily want to see it because I think that's, that it's hurts. too real. To watch. <laughs> yeah, it's too real. And I think you're totally correct. Yeah. Like, from the point of view of a white director and producer, a black final girl screaming won't elicit the same kind of, like, fear or sympathy from a white audience and it just won't have that same effect i would argue that like one part of this is that i think a lot of times whenever black women are on screen particularly in horror movies or in any movie for that they don't never really write the black character um as very virginal or innocent or anything at all either it's like the sassy sidekick or like hypersexualized but it's never really what fit, would fit into that category is never like studious and nerdy and awkward with boys it's always like hypersexualized, catty sassy something very stereotypical there's a bbc show you guys should all check it out and it's kind of a horror show as well and it's called get even and they actually did write the black character in the show as being um very like innocent and she her parents are both very wealthy she's into like tech she's like awkward with boys and i don't think that's something that we see very often in movies i think they write black characters very hypersexualized or either with like just a sidekick personality or or they're super matronly like they're ma from ma like octavia spencer yeah. or or even in us so she's a mom like when it comes down to it she like is gonna take care of business and be the strong one because she's a, a mother and i think that's also just like a mammy-esque stereotype even from black directors no i think that the that i don't need a black scream queen because i don't like what a scream queen represents like i think it's fun and it's camp and it's okay if, if white women want to do that but i don't necessarily need to see black women be traumatized <laughs> i don't know that i like the trope at all to be quite honest yeah, I feel, feel like maybe that's why I didn't really like this movie. I feel so awkward, though, because I remember when I had, like, a production class, my first production class, and my undergrad, and my teacher was like, the most iconic Halloween movie or whatever that you all have to see is Halloween. This is the horror movie that, like, you have to see if you like horror. And I've never liked it whenever I saw it, and every time I just think, I'm really supposed to like this movie, but I just don't. Like, there's nothing about it that I think is a good movie. There's a YouTuber named Kenny JD. Shout out to her. She actually listens to this. But um, she does movies called Bad Movies in a Beat where she like 
talks about a bad movie while she does her makeup. And I really want her to do this movie because I think it fucking sucks. Wow. <laughs> She's not. It's, this, is a, this is a horror classic. It did not suck as bad as warranting to be among the worst movies ever. I don't think there was anything good about it, though. Like, I can't think of a single thing that, about this movie that I thought was good, except for Jamie Lee Curtis's acting. Like, the acting wasn't bad. It was just, like, the characters themselves did not make decisions that made sense at all. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie, I liked the 15-minute chase I, for what it is, which is the established sequence that <laughs> influenced horror thereafter. I think I'm I'm too much, like, bringing into, like, um, the history of horror into watching it because I'm like, oh, this is the thing that made it what it is. But I, I'm not gonna lie, it got me. I thought it was scary. If we're evaluating it just on, like, scare factor, I was scared. <laughs> like, you said it was corny when the friends jumped out, their bodies fell. But when that white guy was swinging with the knife in his chest, I literally jumped out my seat. So I did not expect it. Maybe it's because I never watched this at night, but I've, I've just never found it scary. But on the contrary, like in terms of like original OG horror movies that are supposed to scare you, I still do find The Exorcist scary. I do See, think I that still holds up as like a, a landmark horror film. I don't think this in the same way does. I think this is a great movie to talk about the Scream Queen trope and like slasher films, but I just don't think it makes sense. Like again, if he is not immortal, he should not be getting <laughs> shot six times, stabbed three times, falling off a balcony and coming back and four to five more movies like that should not be happening but he dies and it just keeps happening in a way that makes the entire premise of the movie fall flat because if he's this angry little boy who's a killer he should be able to be killed but i think it's wanting to continue like this franchise and this green queen trope that has kind of just made the movie fall flat what it should be in terms of believability although i do think if she if her character were queer it would make the movie slightly more would, interesting yeah Queerness always makes movies more interesting. You can queer bait, and I'm such easy prey. I'm like, I'll bite. Hello, help me! Can you please help me? Please! Can you hear me? Oh, God! Our next iconic scream does not come from a scream queen, but a scream king. Mark Patton in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, rose to prominence for his performance in this 1986 sequel. Patton's gender-bending adoption, the Scream Queen title, effectively ended up outing him in this public sphere of Hollywood. In this film, Patton's character, Jesse Walsh, is possessed by the vengeful spirit of Freddy Krueger, the dream killer introduced in the first film of the franchise. You've got the body. I've got the brain. Last night I had a dream that somebody was planning to kill me and the way that they were, go they were showing me how they were going to kill me was to do it to a dog first. And they were essentially, they had a dog on like a, uh, those sort of tables that you lie down on when you go to the doctor or something. Uh, the dog was on there and he was like, <laughs> he was like with, with like two sushi knives was like chopping up, not his head, just his body into jelly. Um, and I, I like sometimes lucid dream, but instead of being able to control what I was doing, I instead was just aware that I was dreaming and I was like, what the fuck? I don't want to, I knew that I was, that was going to happen to me next. And I woke myself up That's and horrible. I thought this would be handy in a cuckoo dream. 
I wanted to discuss this film because I thought it was really interesting to look at it from a male perspective of Scream King and see which tropes are still applicable or if which one's not or if it's the same and how it changes, blah, blah, blah. And so I looked at the history and from what I can see is like Patton is often described as the first Scream King, but Bruce Campbell in Evil Dead in 1981 was also a notable Scream King. The process of Patton becoming a Scream King is so interesting because it's like against the backdrop of 80s AIDS epidemic in Los Angeles as well, like focused in Hollywood and like how Hollywood was dealing with that. So essentially, as we all know from watching this film, it has so many like queer scenes, which we'll dive into later. But the screenwriter originally, David Chaskin, didn't take ownership of this. Like he was like, no, we didn't write it to be gay. We didn't write a gay subtext. And apparently the screenwriter Chaskin only admitted it later in the 2010 documentary about the Elm Street series, um, Never Sleep Again. And the fact that like other people, like the director, Jack Shoulder, didn't really think it was, it was kind of unintentional, like he wasn't aware of like the extremely erotic charge like so many of the scenes had, which I don't know how. Robert England for Attitude Mag said he thought that there was quite obvious bisexual themes and that casting Mark Patton, because he was like this out Broadway actor in New York, was a, a choice, you know, like to make it more queer. Like, it was more deliberate. So it's kind of, like, mixed whether this was intentionally queer or just accidentally. Patton himself says he doesn't think the character was written to be gay, but just kind of became that way given the context and everything. So I thought that was interesting. But Hollywood was super homophobic. He was... Patton was told, like, what he could and couldn't wear. Because he said he was, like, out in New York, but he was told when he moved to Hollywood that he, like, he couldn't go to gay bars in West Hollywood because agents would basically end up, like, you know, outing him in the, in their circles and like, so that their own clients would get casted ahead of him. Like it would sabotage his career. And he also couldn't, he wasn't allowed to take an interview request about the Broadway play, um, uh, from the, the advocate magazine. Cause it's like queer because people were like, no, you'll end up outing yourself. And they didn't want him to be out, I guess the rep, his representatives, I guess. So yeah, super interesting that this film, this role, and his um, role as a Scream King made this film take on a really, like, gay charge. Not him specifically, actually, as we'll get into. But yeah, just interesting. Scream King, very queer. I saw that he said, like, the them making the movie, like, so obviously gay, like, messed up his entire career. Because he said everyone kind of just typecast him as gay after that. And he basically just didn't get roles because no one wanted to hire the guy who they thought was gay. Which I thought was really messed up considering the direction this franchise went in. Because it's the franchise itself is still like quite notable and popular. But they kind of just destroyed his career because they were like, we can. Yeah, I think I think he was offered a role as like a gay character. Like it would have been a very lead role. And he actually turned it down. I think he also became HIV positive, and I don't know if that was before or after. Either way, there was a lot of stigma surrounding the AIDS epidemic and gay men in general, so he ended up refusing roles. So, like, basically, yeah, this kind of tanked his opportunities for, like, more straight, I guess, roles, and then also he was so, like, scarred from what was happening in Hollywood and America in general that he didn't take on gay roles either. I might have given this whole thing too much credit i don't believe it was not on purpose i think this is a very gay movie i i simply, I simply don't, don't um it. <laughs> but uh, yeah but 
I went even further beyond that. So, like, when I knew it was out in 1985, and this was, you know, context clues of that, I saw a lot of nods to, perhaps, like, gay panic or, like, the gay panic excuse that people can use legally in some states that, like, they killed somebody because whatever. Um, The fact that, like... I'm going back to Candyman because it felt a lot like Candyman to me about this thing that invades your dreams and invades your body and and uses your body to kill. It super reminded me of that. And I'm like, okay, so, but in the context of Candyman, it's like a white woman is the killer, it, a white straight woman. And in this context of like 1985 of like being afraid of the gay man, the effeminate gay man in particular, I, it was either, I was either like, this is super tone deaf or it's on purpose and it's, and it's bringing a voice to that like gay panic that was so prevalent. There also was that, there's a little bit, a touch of the like gays are pedophiles moment that happens with the sister. And like, I couldn't tell if this was very intentional and self-aware in, in having a, a queer coded body do those things in 1985 or was it intensely homophobic and tone deaf and on purpose or was it all really an accident i can't tell i'm glad that you said that because like there's another scene with his sister that i thought they were hinting that like he had some sort of panic about feminine femininity and freddie being associated with femininity when his sister takes like the scary nail things out of her cereal box and puts them on her fingers and he like has this just look of like fear on his face and then he himself every time he looks at the hand also looks very afraid and of course like later it's because it's associated with killing but like initially when he like pulls it out and he refuses to put it on I was was like it sort of feels like he's almost afraid of doing anything that could be associated with femininity I was gonna say Zeba that I wrote I wrote in my notes that I think Freddie I I would argue that it's not the progressive interpretation I would argue it's the homophobic one unfortunately and I said that I think Freddie is like a symbol of his like repressed um sexuality and he's like he is basically every like gay man stereotype of the time condensed like so all the homophobic stereotypes he's one he's hypersexual like the way he kills the um, the queer coach is like whipping him and like it's like hypersexual booty. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Honestly, I I low key love it, but that's not the point. <laughs> it was like hypersexual and also like a hint of like kink. So it was like he's like wearing leather and it's like yeah. oh look at these these men are so perverse and sexually deviant. And then uh, pedophilic, like you said, with the younger sister. Um, yeah, and there was something else. Oh, you know when you said it was in episode two, because I was curious when you said it. Um, you said possession is like a fear of rape, essentially, for women. And I was like, well, this is very much that, but like fear of like being raped by, I guess, a man, like in the form of Freddy Krueger. And the dialogue mm-hmm. he uses to talk about this possession is so like almost triggering if you just read it, like big trigger warning. Lisa, I killed Snyder. Oh, oh my God. I'm so scared. He's inside me. I'm scared. Fred Krueger. 
He's inside me, and he wants to take me again. I was like, this is so, this is so like penetrative and gay because Freddy's yeah. a guy, and it's very much like I'm afraid. And you could view Freddy as like the homophobic stereotype, like invading the innocent male vessel who would have otherwise been straight, or you could view it as like Freddy symbolizes his own repressed sexuality. I don't know. It depends what you what you want how you want to see it but i just thought that was so like oof um another thing that i was thinking that also seemed like they were alluding to like rape was the showers after his coach like punishes him by running and he's like hit the showers i thought that that was a very strange thing like that entire thing felt very odd and also his coach hitting yeah. on him as they a said he likes pretty boys I was like, the coach does, I mean, and he was like meant to be super predatory. And I was, it's just like, so such bad depictions of queer men. I thought it was strange that like, uh, so much of the movie was supposed to be a subtext when it's that line, when he goes in to, I guess, I would guess his friend's house. They weren't very mm, friendly, to be honest. That wrestling. He goes, goes to the guy's house. <laughs> he goes to the guy's house and says, uh. Like, can he sleep with him when he can't have sex with a girl because his tongue turns into Freddy? Freddy's, and the guy's like, yeah, your problem is that you have, like, a girl waiting for you in her, like, bungalow or whatever, but you want to sleep with me. And I was like, well, this is pretty direct <laughs> about what they're saying. This is not very subtle. Yeah. I was wondering, like, because, you know, if, uh, if Freddy is, like, symbolic of his repressed homosexual tendencies, which are also portrayed as super monstrous i thought it was interesting that the girlfriend is like to him or i thought that's reinforced by the fact that the girlfriend is like you can fight him jesse you created him you can destroy him and i was like i mean not only is that kind of victim blaming if jesse's been raped by this like possession narrative freddy krueger thing it's also like very much like oh gay's a choice stereotype kind of happening here as well and, like, he could just choose to be with her. It was all very... And he gets burned at the end. Like, Freddy's burned out of him. That also has sort of, like, purifying religious connotations for me. They made the girl's entire personality the, like, snap. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, when she comes over his house and's like, yeah, you called me and asked me to come over, so I came over to clean your house with you. And I was like, And he's gay. <laughs> please. Please. Love yourself. <laughs> And she, like, appears to be, like, quite wealthy, but she, like, shows up his house every morning to, like, ride in his car that is so raggedy it doesn't need keys. And she's like, yeah, I just, and her friends are like, I hope you're getting some. And she's like, I'm getting a ride to school. And, like, just looking at him is enough. I was like, this is just so uncomfortable. She really needed a hobby. She needed, she needed someone to snap her out of this. She had a pool, too. It felt so awkward. If I had a pool, I would just be swimming. I wouldn't be thinking about men. <laughs> Is she a simp or is she a beard? She was prepared to be both. <laughs> um, I had a question for you guys on a more lighthearted note. Do you remember the scene where Freddy, it's the very beginning where he basically says, I have plans for you. And he like appears and like slams uh, Jesse against the wall. And Jesse's like, ah, against the wall. I was like, A, that was very Dom of Freddy. So question, Freddy, top? I am not saying <laughs> A hundred percent, yes. I agree. Not a top, true verse. Okay. It, but but when he bottoms, power bottoms. <laughs> I agree. I can okay. see that. I can see that. I guess, like, 
I guess for, uh, Jesse does take ownership sometimes, like when he opens his mouth and you see his little eye and he's like, I love you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that made me die. I hate that shot. I hate it. I thought it was so funny. Also, like how you were saying there are other parts of the movie that feel like they could be talking about other parts of the gay experience. Like his dad seeing Jesse as what's sabotaging him from having his perfect suburban life and he's like you're doing all of this to mess with me you're doing this because you want to sabotage me make me look stupid and it's just him like trying to tell him that something's wrong with the house feels like almost like the dad could be saying that him not being like this perfect heterosexual son is what is making his life more complicated i don't remember that bit but i may have been asleep but that's a good point it was um like when the birds com- spontaneously oh! combusted and he blamed him for it. And he was like, you put something in them and like this is all your fault and you're doing it to make me look stupid so your mom doesn't want to be here. And I was like, that is a far-fetched theory, I sir. forgot about that, but also I remember the bird scene, so I was awake for it. I had a power nap, five-minute power nap in this film. It was late last night. That, that bird combusting scene was so funny to me as well. <laughs> I was like, mm, fried chicken. Fried parrot? But I think that's a great, like, interpretation of it anyway. <laughs> I, I wrote that, like, it's just funny that screaming, like, made everyone think that, or his Scream King status helped people be like, ah, you're gay. I was like, what? Why can't men just scream, you know? You know that, um, like, tweet series, oh, fellas, is it gay to scream when you're being murdered? <laughs> I don't know. It seems a little spicy to me. I Gay. Gay. <laughs> I just thought about when that lady said if she goes on a date and a guy orders dessert and then she's leaving immediately because he's gay. (laughs) Is it gay to have a sweet tooth? I love toxic masculinity. It's the best. Is it gay to scream when you're getting murdered? But it's true. You don't see men scream in movies. Men don't scream in real life either. When do they learn not to scream? Like when does it have to be an uh? They only scream like violently. When they're yeah. yelling at you. Oh, oh. <laughs> true tea though. Louisa, when you said when you said that it was this this man's scream that outed him, I thought I would have to wait until the climax of the movie when he screams <laughs> to like for him to be outed. And when he walked on screen, Act One, Scene One, I was like, "This is a homosexual." <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't need him. To that dance scene at the beginning. I know. <laughs> But she thought it was high. The girl like comes in and she's like, I too was once a beard, but I was also gay. So he was also my beard, if you will. So I quite, I love that for us. Could she be gay? I didn't get that. I got that she was, she truly believed the, the illusion. She truly believed that his dance was sexy. (laughs) And also another scene that, besides the wrestling scene and the dance scene was like when him and the guy had to like lay on the grass because they got in trouble during whatever game they were playing in P and he was basically humping the grass <laughs> next to the guy and they were both like moaning I was like they were what doing is- push-ups <laughs> what is this PE class they were doing push-ups are you saying it's gay to do push-ups fellas is it <laughs> gay to do push-ups <laughs> they were not doing push-ups they were very low to the ground was it like Channing Tatum I, in um, Magic Mike? Magic Mike kind of push-ups, like ooh. The the boys at my high school definitely used to wrestle like that, and I would say it was gay. And everyone would look at me sideways, like these are clear, these are clear, straight homosocial behavior. I don't know what you're talking about. And to this day, I hold that these teenage boys do be they do be looking for excuses to touch. 
Our last screen queen is a little bit different. In the 2016 film Hush, actress Kate Siegel plays a deaf writer who is terrorized by a mass killer in her isolated woodland home. This puts a bit of a twist on the established horror trope, urging audiences to think about what happens when we mute this historically noisy horror trope. I can come in anytime I want. And I can get you anytime I want. But I'm not going to. Not until it's time. When you wish you're dead, that's when I'll come inside. Did she not have a security system? Why would you not have a security system if you lived that far out in the country? I had a teacher when I was in high school and she used to live out in the country and she's like, yeah, I used to live my, leave my door unlocked because I didn't have any neighbors for miles. And now that I live in the city, I have to lock it. And I was like, girl, what? That sounds like a terrible idea. But in this movie, she also had her doors unlocked because she had to lock them. And I'm like, if there's no one to help you for miles, what in your brain would say, I should leave my doors unlocked? I think that's like an American thing, though. I just mean like it's a small town vibe thing. My favorite thing about this film was the fact that I love, um, I love the fact that he tries to use her deafness as a weakness, but she's like, no, 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 I'm actually going to use your hearing ability against you. And she like weaponizes sound in this film. And I thought that was such a clever uh, twist for the protagonist and she says like she uses the car alarm as a distraction and she uses the fire alarm to like disable him temporarily it was really um really clever I was like wow I like this movie because I feel like out of all the ones that we watched this was the only one that actually felt scary to me like hush feels like your it feels creepy like your skin is crawling the entire time it feels like, even though you may not be deaf and you may not be in the exact same situation as a protagonist, it feels like something more relatable, I guess, to the general female experience than Halloween does. Because, like, in this movie, it's not, like, her being a babysitter, like, her occupation, because that is very odd and very specific, and they couldn't even explain why he killed his sister, the babysitter. But, like, in this movie, it's, like, her weakness. Like, something that he portrays that he can hold over her as what makes him try to destroy her. Because he originally wasn't even at her house. He was at her neighbor's house. And he may not have even wandered there had, like, the neighbor not came and he saw she was deaf. But, like, him perceiving that she had a weakness that he could prey upon was, like, what made him be like, oh, I have to see this out through the end. And I think that's something so relatable to the female experience because even if it's not in a setting that's necessarily violent so often, you do feel like things that happen with male interactions are specifically because they see some sort of weakness in you that they can manipulate to their advantage or to make them feel more powerful. Yeah, this, like, horror genre of presumably disenfranchised white 30-something guy plays sadistic game with women in an isolated area. Like, these films for me are always the most terrifying because you're like, yep, that could 100% happen. And I truly believe that this, it feels like a very real experience for a lot of women or at least something that you think about and that you're scared might happen to you. You might be that sadistic. Um of some guy that just decides to like play with your life. I think that's really interesting that you guys are both saying that it's um, like emblematic of the female experience because um, Kate Siegel um, in an interview with Bloody Disgusting said that she, um, she was asked about like how horror so much like fetishizes violence against women. And she was like, um, she said that she didn't really view 
she viewed Maddie, like her character, as more of an action hero. But then she said something that I thought was strange. She said, I don't think if you switch the genders, you can keep all of the story points. And she said, nothing happens to Maddie because she's a woman and she doesn't choose anything because she's a woman. We could neutralize gender in this movie and you would have the exact same movie. And I thought, no, I actually very much disagreed with that. I was like, I think this movie would be entirely different if it was a man who was being terrorized by like another man say i don't think it would have been i think like like you alluded to mila there's a whole canon of women being terrorized by like isolated in woods and horror um that's it's like feeding into but also like you said taya like every woman can relate to ex- an experience where they felt sort of vulnerable and like open to like manipulation i don't know like you said i don't think it was true at all i was like if you change the gender in this movie it wouldn't work as well it's kind of like in episode one where we did Girl Walks a Home Alone at Night. It's like there's all there's a specific experience that you have as a woman where being alone or being in a dark place, even if you're, it's your own home and you're there alone at night and it's isolated, you still have like an underlying fear that you could be a victim mm-hmm. the same way that you do when you walk home alone at night that I think a man who lives in a cabin in the woods by himself probably doesn't have. Because he's like, if someone breaks in, I can overpower them. It's fine. Like, But we don't have that same experience because usually you would probably need a weapon to overpower a man if he is attacking you. Just by sheer like body weight and muscle. Even if it is like a thin guy, like it's just very hard to do. That was actually one of the things I liked about it as well. Because when she's at the end and she's running through the different endings that she could possibly, or her options that she could do, she says, she even acknowledges, like, no, he's bigger, he's faster, he's stronger than me. And I actually kind of liked that because I think so often when horror is like, I'm, or just cinema in general, when they try to be like, I'm going to create a strong woman, they try to be like, women are like always equals and like super, like, they just make basically a man <laughs> but like call it a woman do you know what I mean and so I didn't and it yeah. like overcompensates and says like oh no I will fight him and be hyper aggressive and so so I kind of liked it because I was like no this is more realistic because if you were in that situation to be like yeah my options are toast like he will outrun me I'm injured already like he will overpower me if we get into like a tussle like it's not gonna work I kind of liked that realistic nature not to say that all women are weaker I just meant like there is a like acknowledgement of what would actually happen in that situation? Let's be honest. Like, we don't need to have a final girl who's, like, ridiculously hyper-masculine or something. Like, we can have a final girl who survives even though she's potentially stereotypically female. Even right at one point on the window, she wrote, like, my boyfriend will mm-hmm. be home or something like that. Like, yeah. I don't, like, I don't think if you, if we gender neutralized it or gender swapped it, that, like, <laughs> my writing in yeah, lipstick, my girlfriend, my girlfriend will be home, will be home like- soon. <laughs> So you you better watch out. <laughs> I think one thing that makes this movie scarier than the other movies that we saw is like in this movie he starts as a mass killer, but when she says like, "Oh, you can leave. I didn't see your face." He takes mm. it off to let her know there's no way I'm going to let you get out of the situation. Oof. That in Halloween he never takes off his mask. But I think in that moment where he takes off the mask, I would argue is one of the scariest moments of the movie because it's just like the fear of that is so terrifying. Like I know like my mom would always, well, she still does. Um, she's always like, if you're in a situation where like someone breaks in their home, your home or like tries to rob you and you see their face, there's a 90% chance they're not going to let you walk away from the situation. And so just like the overwhelming implications of what that scene meant to me was so terrifying. Also, I mean, I agree to some extent that 
her being a woman actually doesn't, it's not paraded that much in the film. It's not like integral to her character. However, I feel like gender plays a really important part in the way that the guy kills her friend. I don't know if you guys picked up on like how sort of like sexualized her mm-hmm. murder was when he was stabbing her with the knife and he was like thrusting her up against the window. Even when she was dead, he continued for like a few more thrusts and it felt just, and, and the camera, I think it was like over her shoulder. So you couldn't even see the knife. It just like, it could have been a shot of them having sex. And I was like, okay. I, I, I And I don't think it was exploitative, like, from the filmmaker I think it was really supposed to frame this character in that really like sexually perverse sexually violent perverse way um and in that sense I think that gender relations played a really important part in the film because this guy oh he's just he does he has that incel shit about him doesn't mm. he I feel like I said this in another episode <laughs> yeah but I think we does. say it in every episode I, I and every every episode I'm like this guy is like an incel but it's true like he really seems like he's just out, you know, to, I don't know, to enact revenge on the world because, I don't know, some girl didn't fucking smile at him. What do you think? I never, I didn't actually think yeah. of this at the time, but the, I guess the friend who dies, I think Sarah, she would be kind of like our stereotypical almost scream queen, but it's just interesting that her screams literally fall on deaf ears in this instance. Like, it, it's not something that, can save her she's like banging on the wall and it's not it's not doing anything so i don't know so what do we think about like her as a scream queen potentially and the whole scream queen canon compared to maddie as a scream queen who actually can't scream because she had bacterial meningitis at 13 which led to her becoming deaf and then paralyzing her vocal cords so what do we think about that how does she change the scream queen canon I think Maddie is written as a person with common sense. I mean, not to say that her friend is stupid, but I think it's a hard chance to go to your neighbor's house who cannot hear and knock on her windows for her to help you. Even if she is standing right there, I think that was a a very slim chance that it was going to have a good outcome. Versus Maddie kind of accepts that no one is going to come help her. And she kind of thinks things through in several different ways using her writer brain that they gave her throughout the movie. And she fights back. And she realizes very early on that one of them is going to walk out of there and it's either going to be her or him. And it's not going to be a situation where anyone else can come and help her. Versus her friend kind of is more of a damsel in distress who's depending upon someone coming to help her. Even if it's Maddie, (laughs) which is a hard sell. I also think her not being able to scream. So when she was where like normally a movie would insert screams of either pain or fear, like when she's hurt, when she's scared of this guy, I actually found those moments way more impactful than like, let's say the 50 minute chase sequence in Halloween where it becomes a little bit overdone. Like, and and maybe we've, we've become desensitized to now, female screaming but I don't know it there was something really different about this movie in the way that it communicated fear and pain and I also really want to credit Kate Siegel because her performance was really amazing and I think it just made you so much more engrossed in the movie and I really rooted for her in a way that I haven't for a while like with a sort of final girl type character 
the like screaming screaming she hits all the like key definers of what a scream queen is it's a home invasion she's smarter than everybody else she doesn't have a romantic interest and people comment on it like yeah. she like she she hits all the markers besides the screaming it's like super classic actually it, it definitely is updated and the use of technology i want to talk about eventually but like it, it feels fresh and modern but when you really think about it 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 does not stray far from the classic structure. Yeah. Did you like the um, the use of the sound design here? Because I was reading that um, this idea for the film between uh, Flanagan and Kate Siegel. Did you know that they were married? I did not. Her husband made this movie? Yeah. I love that. And he's, um, he's the director of The Haunting of Hill House in Bly Manor, Hill too. House. And she stars in that. I didn't know like, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that. I learned that today. Today years old when I learned that. Anyway, um, apparently when they were brainstorming for this movie, they wanted they were trying to think of a film without dialogue, and that's kind of how they ended up writing a deaf protagonist who also couldn't speak. But then they were all they they toyed with the idea of having it be completely silent, but then they worried that the audience would be too distracted, like the hearing audience would be too distracted by the noises in the room to be like immersed in the film and it would like they would lose the dramatic tension um and i thought that was kind of interesting so instead of that they just had like those muted moments and they would really um i had a quote from flanagan he said that he would make um audiences focus on like all the sounds that we're not exactly conscious of when we do listen like footsteps and crickets and wind and like the creaks of the house and especially like her breath which they edited in during post um i thought that was interesting i wondered what you guys thought of that do you think it made you more aware of your hearing or do you think it would have actually been better if it was completely muted like they originally brainstormed i think we kind of lightly discussed this in our group chat but i think this movie did this really well because one of the things that made me kind of disassociates at certain moments in a quiet place is that they put like a score over it and then they had uh subtitles which i don't mind subtitles in films at all but the score was very distracting versus in this movie i think the sound design kind of added to the creepiness of it because it felt like almost your floor is creaking or the wind in your backyard being a little too loud and giving you like a shiver i thought it was a really brilliant way to make it a bit more scary and a bit more personal. So do you think the sound design also weaponizes sound for us low-key, just in the same way that the character yeah. weaponizes sound for That's true. That's true of all horror movies, true. though. Like, I think sound is 50% of the scare. And because, like, when I was a, a, a youngin' and I would go to see a, a scary movie in theaters, I would plug my ears mm-hmm. if I got scared. Yeah, same. Because I can, I could watch it. That was fine. But like the the surround sound in the movie theater That's speakers, so I I if I got spooked, I would like I would like just cover up and I'd be like totally fine. So I think a movie a scary movie without the the sound, even if it's not a jump scare, the creaky floors, the score, the music, the score in Halloween we also didn't talk about. Like very very classic but like super excellent even background music is like half of the experience if not more. The plugging the ears, I think everyone, yeah, I'm pretty sure everyone does that I if they're scared. I actually found that it was like the visuals that would scare me more. But I think it's because the stuff that I was watching that would scare me when I was little was like less 
things with jump scare and more things that had like creatures and so it was like seeing the creature that would scare me like i used to be really afraid of leprechaun that those <laughs> movies i used to be terrified of those when i was younger okay <laughs> so i couldn't see it but like yeah like the the voice and stuff didn't bother me it was like the visual of it would just give me the worst nightmares um i just looked this up because i didn't know that Kate Siegel isn't actually deaf herself. No, she's not. And I would say you mentioned A Quiet Place and I loved this movie so much more than A Quiet Place, but I would feel like, I think they probably should have hired a deaf actress. Yeah. He said he was giving his wife some employment. Yeah, which is fair enough. Like, and they, whatever, they wrote it together. Nepotism (laughs) strikes. In A Quiet Place, I know that the daughter herself is deaf and she played a huge part in the dialogue and the way they would communicate and some of the setup of the scenes because she had that very real experience with being deaf that, you know, you can't, it's not something you can emulate. At least I don't think in the the truest way. It did surprise me because when I thought, uh, when I saw the premise of this movie, I thought like they were the aim would have been to try to make a more inclusive horror for the deaf community. But then I saw that the aim was actually to try to make, it was more of an aesthetic aim. They were like, do you think they challenged themselves as a married couple? Like, do you think we could make a film without dialogue? And then that's what sprung it on. I, I actually came across this really interesting YouTube video by a member of the deaf community named Ricky Pointer. And she had a lot to say about this movie and how it wasn't completely accurate and not the best deaf representation and she really wished that they had confronted the deaf community. For example, she said like the ASL at times wasn't accurate and she said it's actually really difficult to like speak and do sign language at the same time like the neighbor is shown to do. Um, usually people who know ASL just do one um, because they're two different languages. Um, she said the sign language was sometimes not in full frame, and that's annoying as a deaf viewer. And But she said she didn't like the fact that um, main, the main character, Maddie, was like an expert lip reader. She's like, it's so common for like films made by hearing people to like make deaf characters who are like expert lip readers. She's like, really, that's not that common. And the main critique she had, though, from what I gathered from that video, was that there was no way... Um, that Maddie wouldn't have been able to hear her neighbor banging on the door. Like, she would have felt the vibrations and, like, turned around. So it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the most accurate um, representation, and they definitely should have at least had pro- probably a deaf actress, but at the very least, like, a deaf person to consult for this because they made some mistakes. Um, Mike Flanagan, the director, was like, oh, the reason we didn't hire a deaf actress was because... Um, because I wanted there to be an inner monologue at one point, so we needed, like, a speaking role, you know? And to which point this YouTuber, Ricky, was like, well, you could have just done a voiceover. Like, you could have had a deaf actress and then just had a voiceover, and Kate could have done the voiceover. Like, there was really no need <laughs> to have Kate do it, but... I, I, I did think it brought interesting in tech attention to where tech and accessibility overlap. So like the first instance for me that really got me thinking was when she's trying to call 911 and I was like, how 
is this gonna work? At first I was like, can you call 911 on a video chat and sign? And then I was like, what is the likelihood that every dispatch station has somebody who speaks ASL? Like it got me like really thinking about that. Eventually she like typed or texted, but that's not super accessible to like elderly folks who are deaf, who like don't know how to do all of that. You know, there's there's gotta be protocol. I was like, what's the protocol? Um, and even that the fire alarm has to be so loud it vibrates was was like the second thing to me I was like god damn like like and she's living alone like all of it meant that there had to be very easy and accommodating technology around her at all times like the the use of FaceTime for everything reading lips or signing or whatever like there were there were a lot of moments that called at least called attention to it and started like the brain train running as far as thinking about different forms of accessibility and what people mean in emergency i guess when the neighbor's boyfriend shows up and he says like he was such a big guy he knew he couldn't overpower him so he was like thinking of outcomes i thought that was interesting because it kind of showed that he also had like a thought process going on in the movie on how he was going to get to her but she shows up and he's like i'm glad she showed up because it gave me a chance to overpower you because you're like twice my size and i was like how am i ever going to fight this big dude without him taking me out and he's like i figured there was a two in ten chance of you trying to fight with me and i was like well so they both have like very critical thoughts going on throughout this so it felt like an equally matched thing in terms of the minds and i think maybe that's what the actress meant where she said well kate siegel meant where she said you could swap the genders and nothing is changing because in terms of their mind strength it's nearly the same and the her physical abilities are almost equally matched with them because she teaches herself how to use the bow and arrow and even though she's injured and so yeah crossbow she teaches herself how to use that even though she's injured so they kind of become equally matched throughout the movie and it's not necessarily like he is way smarter than her he's way more physically capable it's like they both kind of are playing up their own strengths and manipulating the other's weakness and it's just like a cat and mouse type thing that felt to be fair on kate i think she was talking in that interview about like the horror trope that like violence sexualizes like women in horror when they're sexualized and stuff she was saying though this film doesn't do that and then she went on to say something like about how you could swap the genders but it was just kind of like well that broad point i don't agree with i still think she has the acknowledgement though that he's stronger and stuff like he'll overpower her in a fight i think that acknowledgement is there but i think like in other horror movies we're kind of like made to think that the killer is smarter than the yeah person. true like they'll hide in the closet and the, the killer's behind them because they already knew they were going to be in the closet or the killer comes in and they aren't holding their breath and they're under the bed like the or something and they're like i know you're under the bed it's almost like we just see them get outsmarted all the time but in this movie that doesn't really happen it's they seem very equally matched in their in terms of their mental capabilities and they are just playing up each other's weaknesses yeah i liked the introduction of the boyfriend of sarah's who was like like the stereotypical jock and i liked it how it undermined the killer's own masculinity and (laughs) <laughs> Again, I thought that was a point that couldn't have the gender swapped over because I was like, no. I even liked the introduction of the boyfriend because it was like, ah, here's where the man is going to save the final girl, damble in distress, and then it just like absolutely not at all does not happen. <laughs> He's taken out. The gore in this movie was perfect. Mm. The amount, the way it was used, it was just like the perfect amount. Like 
it went with the pace of the movie. Everything was really just well structured. And I think that also is because it like, it kicked off really soon. There was no like faffing about with trying to prolong um, tension for a long period of time, like setting up the movie. The, the neighbor comes screaming, like I think it's like 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in. And then it just like, I don't know, it really sustains it well. And then it doesn't overdo, it's, there's no overkill with the violence or the gore, but it also doesn't like, it doesn't lag in any way. So yeah, I'd say that the movie for me was like near perfect in terms of the pace. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud, and Spotify at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast, and on Twitter at The Pie. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and rate us on Apple Podcasts to be our next Witch of the Week. Brooms up, witches out.